Father, we do thank you for this time we have to look at New Testament doctrine. We ask that as we head into Holy Week, um, you would keep these revealed truths about your Son and, and, and how you work in the world in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are on chapter 10 in Methods of Bible Study today. New Testament doctrine. What page is that, y'all? Page 90 in the, uh, the common book there. Page 90. So, um, yeah, last week we talked about topical studies of the New Testament. Now we're going to move into um, looking at the, um, the substance of the Christian doctrine that is in the New Testament. Um, the, in our introductory paragraph, Griffith Thomas says, uh, In the New Testament, I'm sorry, the New Testament is preeminently our guide, quote, into all truth associated with the personal and historical Revelation of our Lord. So um, we're going to look at um, this in, in three three basic stages is how we're going to do this, and then we're going to look at those in the way they develop in in um, the New Testament. Well, again, we have we do see this idea of the progress of doctrine as we go through. So first, we're going to we're going to see we want to observe facts that are newly revealed. So new things from the New Testament that we didn't see at all in the Old Testament. So there's going to be some of that. Next, we're going to, second, we're going to consider the facts whose full meaning is newly discovered. And so that goes back to when we talked about, oh, ages and ages ago, how the Old Testament is a book of unfulfilled prophecies. Um, um, an, an, a, uh, I forget how he framed the kingdom, but the, the kingship that has not been fully established, the unexplained ceremonies, and we're going to see that the New Testament does give us the full meaning of a lot of those things newly discovered, although they were already revealed previously. And then third, we're going to combine the facts that we read in the New Testament so that we do have correct doctrine and we're not kind of um, making a banner out of one little thing and going off the uh, deep end. That, that's how most heresy happens is you take a truth, you overemphasize it to the exclusion of other truths, and then you get imbalanced. That's the way that heresy usually happens. Um, and so this first idea of... of of the new facts, newly revealed facts, and then the, the previously revealed facts whose full meaning is fully discovered, that will give us what we often will call biblical theology. So the theology is presented directly in the Bible. Not, and that's not saying that there is theology that is unbiblical, but there's a difference between um, a systematic approach where we take the Bible as a whole and we kind of put it, organize it, based on what we do see in the Bible, versus... Um, here's what this part of the Bible says at this part, this part of the Bible says at this part, and we can see how, how our theology grows as, uh, throughout the different parts of the Bible, that sort of thing, how, how we get a bigger picture. Um, and that third one is, again, systematic theology that correctly combining the facts of the scriptures so that we're not um, uh, misrepresenting what we, what we find in the Bible as a whole. Okay, so let's look at these developments. Um, the first stage we have here in the book is the Gospels. So Griffith Thomas says, 
a careful study of the four Gospels reveals several consecutive aspects of our Lord's teaching concerning himself. So first of all, we see his Messiahship, that um, idea of who he is as the Messiah. Um, John 1 through 4 in the early Judean ministry, that first time he goes to to Judea and Jerusalem, um, we see how that, that builds up. He claims to be the Messiah in Jerusalem and then in all of Judea and then in Samaria with the woman at the well. Um, And then in the Galilean ministry, we get a bit of a change. When he's in Galilee, he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Um, So you see this in the early chapters of of Matthew and a lot of those parables, uh, for example. And so we should consider the meaning of the kingdom, um, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, what are the laws of the kingdom of God, um, what are the results of the kingdom of God. And then we get, as we progress through the gospel stories, um, an emphasis on the person of the Son of God. What does it mean that he's not just the Messiah, but that he's the Son of God? Um, Some of the miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, uh, really point this out. Um, And it culminates, Griffith Thomas says, in Peter's confession, um, you are the Son of God, um, that, that sort of thing. And the transfiguration, where they see him in his glory. And then after this, we get a a stress laid on the suffering and deaths of Christ. That's what we're looking at, especially during Holy Week now, um, during Passion Tide and Holy Week. From um, the time of the Transfiguration until the entry of Jerusalem that we're going to be talking about and celebrating today on Palm Sunday, um, he's talking about his coming suffering and death. And then we find... During Holy Week in the Bible itself, he talks a lot about his second coming. He, you know, it's not, he's not just talking about his, his upcoming death, but he's talking about how he's going to come again one day that, um, Griffith Thomas calls that his second advent. Number six, the dispensation of the spirit. So, um, Uh, We see this in John 14 through 17, that that big, long discourse that includes the high priestly prayer, where he talks about how he's going to send the Spirit and what that's going to mean for the the church, what that's going to mean for the apostles. Um, So especially look at John 14 through 17. All of that takes place, by the way, during the Last Supper. John's Gospel doesn't have... The narrative of the Lord's Supper, he doesn't have the words of institution, we don't get to do this in memory of me there, but we do have this long teaching on what's going to happen, um, especially that expectation of the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 17. And then at the very end of the Gospels, in the beginning of Acts, we see the Great Commission, where the Lord is sending, just before he ascends, he's sending the apostles to spread the good news, spread the gospel. So if we, if we look at these seven sections, we do see a complete view of Christ's earthly ministry. We can kind of put that all together. And there's different things that happen in each of these sections, the different doctrines that, that we can glean from that. Um, any questions on that before we move into the next stage? Any, any, any thoughts or comments on that? Okay, well then let's move on. The second stage here, what page are we on, Lily? 93. 93. 
I'm, I'm using my electronic copy today. I don't remember what I did with my books last week. So, um, The second stage is the Acts of the Apostles. So pretty much from the day of Pentecost until St. Paul is in Rome awaiting his death, we see the, those first 30 or so years of the church. So um, it begins with the resurrection of Christ, and they're preaching Jesus in the resurrection. There's very much their homilies, their preaching is all this eyewitness account. This is where we, what we saw, this is what happened, um, and here's the results of that. Um, then the uh, number two, the rule of Christ, what the practical outcome of Christ's Godhead is his lordship, his rule over man as king. And so you see them beginning to preach the gospel of the kingdom as the conclusion of the resurrection. And our Lord rose, Griffith Thomas says, that he might reign. And we see that um, explicitly taught in Romans. Um, the remissions of sin in Christ, how Jesus forgives us of our sins. When we come to him, we are cleansed from our sins. Um, so that's another aspect of the doctrine we find in Acts. And um, you'll see that they are addressing in Acts what this means for those who are unsaved as well as for those who are saved. There's kind of different ways this applies. Um, and so those, those are things we can find when we look at the book of Acts and the way the doctrines um, develop, the New Testament doctrine develops in Acts. Um, thoughts, questions, comments on Acts and doctrine? Okay. Well, then, um, the third stage we have is the Pauline epistles. What's that mean? Pauline epistles? Paul wrote them. That's right. Um, and, and this is, of course, the largest section of the New Testament, um, and it comes right after Acts. Um, Paul's epistles are arranged pretty much in order of biggest to smallest, not in the chronological order they are written. So Romans is first, um, then, then the two epistles of the Corinthians, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then we have some of the other ones. You can always remember that, that extra section, my, uh, the priest who, who, um, who was the rector at the place where I was ordained, he used to say, you can remember that because Gentiles eat pork chops. Gentiles eat pork chops. <laughs> okay, um, so the order, yeah, the order that we have um, in, in our Bibles um, we, we see that order starting about the 4th century, where we order it from biggest to smallest. Um, and then we have the epistles to the individuals. Um, and then finally, the epistle to the Hebrews. And the idea there in that order in the 4th century is they're not really sure who Paul, you know, whether or not Paul wrote it. Some say he did, some say he did not. We've talked about that before. So that comes very last. Um, and so... If we look at the order of the books, and again, because this is arranged biggest to smallest, it's a little arbitrary, but we can see, um, but it does help us for our doctrine. Romans, we get our, the foundation for Christian doctrine in there. Romans is going to be our basic, the basic truths of what we believe and preach and, and understand as Christians. It's going to be your most, you could say, systematic of, of when it comes to theology in Romans. Uh, Corinthians, we have more of a case study on church life, especially what to do with bad behavior, right? And how, what it means to live in the church and in community. Um, Galatians, we have the danger of departing from the gospel. What's it, what does it look like to, to depart from 
to apostatize, to depart from the faith, what the danger is of that. In Ephesians, we have some fleshing out of the doctrine. Um, Ephesians is going to be... If Romans is a lot more comprehensive, Ephesians kind of focuses on some of the most important parts of the gospel itself. Uh, The bishop likes to say when he uh, spent a few weeks preaching through Ephesians at at the uh, cathedral when he first became the rector there, way before he was the bishop, that it really helped to change things in the church for the better. Um, Philippians, the the illustration of the Christian life. Do you all remember what the circumstances of St. Paul's life was when when he wrote Philippians? He's in jail. That's right. Good, sweet. Um, Which is a little interesting, and that's also the passage where we get rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Um, It doesn't read like the the book of someone who is um, wallowing in self-pity because he's in prison. Uh, In Colossians, we see um, safeguards against some of those dangers. Thessalonians, the uh, two books of Thessalonians, we have the blessed hope, what, it, what we're looking forward to. We get a lot of our eschatology from Thessalonians um, as far as the way that we get it from Paul's epistles. Uh, there's another way that we might, we might do it. We could do it chronologically. So um, group one, we have first and second Thessalonians. Those are the epistles of his second missionary journey. They're eschatological, like we said. Christ as king, the grace of hope. Um, group two, we could put Galatians and first and second Corinthians and then Romans. And those are the epistles of Paul's third missionary journey. And we see... Um, our, the doctrine of our salvation is really put, pointed out in there. Um, it, we, he, he calls it, it's, he says it's so, teri, so teriological in nature, that means relating to our salvation. Christ is seen as the redeemer and the grace of faith is prominent. Group three, we have Philippians, then Ephesians, then Colossians, and then Philemon. And those are the epistles of the first time St. Paul's in jail. And um, we see the person of Christ is very much emphasize in those who is Jesus. It's Christological. He's seen as Lord and the grace of love is prominent. Group four, we have the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, then Titus, and then 2 Timothy. And that um, was written during St. Paul's release and then second captivity, second time he's in jail. And those are going to really t- teach us a lot more about the church. We don't see anything new about Jesus in those, but we do see a lot about the organization of the church, how you run the church, um, conduct, that sort of thing. And um, so another way you might group these is, um, you know, those, that first group is the, you know, um, this is this just suggestion that Griffith Thomas gives us based on Bishop Lightfoot's uh, plan in his, in his biblical essays. I don't think that's in print anymore. Um, but it's the epistles of the tribunal. You see Christ the judge in that first group. The second group, the epistles of the cross. Christ as the redeemer. The third group, the epistles of the throne. Christ as the word of God. Christ as the king. And then the epistles of the congregation or church organization in that fourth group. Um, and others have said you can really look at those as the springtime, summer, autumn, and winter of St. Paul's life. Um, so, so there we go. Um, so then, uh, any questions on the Pauline epistles? Any thoughts or comments on those epistles before we go on? Uh, even though they are arranged in our Bible somewhat arbitrarily, it still does help. I mean, 
Romans is foundational to everything, so it's, it's not a bad organization nonetheless. All right, no, 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 uh, no questions, comments on this. We are zooming through this. Y'all, y'all, are, uh, y'all are too good. Okay. Uh, the fourth stage, we look at St. John's Epistles and Revelation. Um, and these really are the last books of the Bible that are written, the, fir- the three epistles of John and Revelation. Um, we're not really sure what the order of those are um, and whether those are written before John's Gospel. I think we've talked about that before or not. Um, but, but we do see the latest development or the latest way we, we kind of look at New Testament doctrine is in John's epistles and Revelation. This is really kind of the end of the first century, maybe even spilling over to the very beginning of the second century. So um, the, uh, in the epistles, in John's epistles, um, we, we see St. John really focusing on living today, his life in the present. What does it look like to live as Christians? Um, and what, in light of Jesus' life, in light of who Jesus is. Revelation shows um, the expected glory of the future. And then, of course, we have the other epistles, uh, James, the two epistles of Peter, Jude, and Hebrews. Um, they're, they're not so much going to be looked at, at in terms of the historical, um, where they fit in the history, that's not as, as important um, as they are in their different places. So James, this, this is at least the way Griffith Thomas is suggesting. I, I might quibble with this a little bit. We'll talk about that in a bit. So um, James you, is really associated with the church in Jerusalem, that, that early um, Jewish church. Um, you see that really is the focus in Acts 1 through 15. Um, First Peter... And um, you, you see this is, you can really fit this in um, after that fourth group of Paul's epistles. Second Peter and Jude, kind of between Paul and John. Um, so there's different ways you can look at that in different places. Um, I, I would say that we're pretty sure that James is the oldest of the New Testament books. And so you are going to see some of his language um, is not as developed as his theological language. A prime example of that is the way that James is using the word justification. Um, St. Paul uses the word in a very technical sense. James is using it in a much more general sense. And so that's where people sometimes are going to want to pit James and Paul against each other with regards to justification. Well, Paul is telling us the justification is by grace and not by works, but James is telling us it's by works and not by grace. Um, that's not the way James is using justification. You know, what James is saying is that you are, you are showing your, justi- your theological justification, your salvation. You are showing that you have indeed been justified by your good works. And so you're... The way James is saying, this is going to, if you can follow this, please do. James is saying, your justification is justified by your good works. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know, that theological category of being justified, um, being shown right before the Lord, is proved to be right by your good works. Rather than, okay, does that make sense? Okay, so that's, but again, James being a little, a, one of the earliest book, he's not using it in the same kind of technical theological way that, that Paul would be later on. 
Um, questions and thoughts on, on any of this? Okay, so that's going to give us kind of our, you know, that category of biblical theology, looking at the way these things are. What is Paul's theology in Romans, maybe as contrasted with Paul's theology in Ephesians? That's one way to look at it. That's going to be biblical theology questions. Um, and and these, these are going to be... Uh, so, so let me read this paragraph. This is towards the end of the section here. Um, one other fruitful method of the study of doctrine may be mentioned, though it is obvious that it can only be taken quite generally and must not be pressed into complete detail. It is to study the writings by their authors, especially the epistles, and to see in St. Paul, the apostle of faith, St. Peter of hope, St. John of love, St. Jude of truth, and St. James of duty. So these, these, in a very general way, the way the different apostles, the different writers of the New Testament kind of have different um, uh, foci. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, he, he mentions a book here at the end of the section. I think that's out of print, so we can just skip over that. Let's look at doctrine as a whole. So we've looked at the individual contribution of each. Now let's look at the New Testament doctrine as a whole. So um, we can we can kind of break the whole doctrine into, into these categories. Um, he says the following conspectus may be regarded as fairly complete as a, a, for use as a guide towards looking at New Testament doctrine as a whole. One, what does the New Testament teach us about God the Father? What does the New Testament teach us about God the Son? What does the New Testament teach us about God the Holy Spirit? What does the New Testament teach us about sin? What does it teach us about redemption? What does it teach us about the Christian life? What does it teach us about the future? These all have kind of technical names in systematic theology, but um, don't get bogged down in that. I mean, that's really what we're looking at. What are the, what are the ways that, this, that the Bible teaches on these ones, especially, um, especially the New Testament itself? Um, and he, he says, under each of these, we may group with the necessary subdivisions almost everything in the New Testament can fall under one of these categories. Um, questions, comments on, on that idea? Okay, is, is um, so he says, let, let's, let's take a little, 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 um, a little case study here. He gives us on the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Um, so if we take the epistle to the, 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 the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, and we can say, okay, what does this epistle teach us about the Holy Spirit? Well, so we see four facts about the work of the Spirit. First, he seals us in our salvation, right? Um, that's, and we see that in, in 1.13. Um, we have access to the Father because of the Holy Spirit. That's in chapter 2.18. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit um, later on in chapter 2. And then how, we, how um, the Holy Spirit reveals um, to us in, in, in uh, chapter 3, 5. And what are these four consequences of the Holy Spirit in our life? Well, we have strength. He strengthens us in our Christian walk. We have unity. We're brought together as the church because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, he says here, um, sensitiveness. I'm not sure what he means by that. Let's, <laughs> let's look up the verse he gives us. Ephesians 4.30, maybe that'll give us a bit of a, an insight. Ephesians 4.30... Um, if anybody beats me to it, just go ahead and read it. We'll see who here grew up as Baptist that way, right? 
who did who did sword drills. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's that's a, that's a good thing that, that uh, in that tradition. Uh, all right, we we have we have our sword drill winner. Okay, Don, please read that up for us. Okay, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's, that's an interesting thing. So he says here, the sensitiveness of the Holy Spirit. Um, and what, what, is it, what is it, if you remember the epistle, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, that's when we're, when we're, when we're, when we're sinning, when we're overtly kicking against the goats, um, when, when we're, we're really kind of bucking against who we really are as Christians. That's really neat, and it can grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in 518, and, and um, you know, what, what all that means, so you can see all that in Ephesians. And then he says, um, lastly come two methods of maintaining the Holy Spirit's presence. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is God speaking to us through the Word of God, and then prayer in the Spirit, us speaking to God, all of that from Ephesians 6. And so you can do this kind of thing with any of the books in the Bible where you look at those um, categories, those seven categories of, of systematic theology and see what does an individual book teach about those, how that helps us with our, with our bigger picture. Um, okay, questions, comments, thoughts on, on this? We are, we are about out of time, so we got a, something quick or we can close. It's done. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, once I mean this this gives us kind of a method, but what is what are where are questions going to come on until you start practicing? And absolutely, Don. So um, do that, and I think what we will do um, in, in the future after we've gone through this study is start applying some of this, doing some new test, some some studies of individual books as part of uh, part of our Sunday school um, stuff here. Okay, well then um, I will see you all. In Mass, um, we are not having um, our midweek classes this week. There is no um, midweek. Are the, are the, do you all know if the, the men's, men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies are meeting this week? They are not. Okay, so none of our midweek studies are happening this week, but we are having morning prayer every day, evening prayer and communion every day this week. Um, see your, your Holy Week inserts. Okay, God bless you all.